Hello listeners, it's producer Ben. Now, you know that from time to time we like to drop special bonus episodes to you and with that in mind, here's a conversation between your friend and mine, Tom Williams, and the German football journalist Christoph Biermann. Christoph's latest book is called Football Hackers and it's all about how data and metrics have become commonplace in modern football. Whether you're an XG newbie or an Opta fanboy, as you're about to hear, this is an amazingly detailed book full of insights and anecdotes about how we can now fully assess players' performances, analyse the role of luck and measure what really leads to a last-minute victory. But enough from me, take it away, Tom Williams. Christoph, thank you for descending into the Totally Football Show Jazz Dungeon on one of the warmest and sunniest days of the year, and congratulations on your book. Um, I read this in about 24 hours, and I absolutely loved it. At full of fascinating detail, we find out about how football's data revolution began, where it is now, um, and where it might go in the future. Obvious first question, why did you want to write a book about data analysis in football, and why now? I've already been interested in in this uh, whole data thing for, I would say, more than 10 years, even maybe 12 years. And I've already written a book in German. It's called The Football Matrix that was published 10 years ago. And um, I was thinking already then that there would be a data revolution going on. But in fact, it wasn't. As you remember, at around that time, 15 years ago, a lot of uh, data uh, was collected. Uh, like we, we knew about shots, we know, knew about passes, and, and so on and so on. And so we already had a lot of information. But in the end, it turned out that it not really helped. Because, I mean, to have data is always better and then to not have data yeah. but but it was not really going deep enough so the typical example is um and and coaches and managers always tell you yeah but well, I, I i'm not interested in passes because and a pass completion if there is uh, 100 passes between the two central defenders that doesn't uh, help me and that's true but but now over the years the the um the complexity of the data collected and the density of the data collected has grown immensely we have more uh, complex metrics and so on and they actually tell tell things about the match itself and also about the performance of, of the players and they help in in many ways to understand more about football the title of the book, Football Hackers, is, is very evocative and, and creates this sense of, of code breakers and outsiders coming from outside the sport and, and shaking things up. And we, we encounter some of these underdog figures in the book. There's Matthew Benham, the, the Brentford owner who came into football via professional gambling. Uh, people like Chris Anderson, former US college professor who ends up working at Coventry City, various bloggers and, and data analysts. Is there something about data analysis that appeals to people with a slightly different way of looking at the world, do you think? Yes, um, that's very much true. Um, I think you need a uh, you need a probably more open approach to football than the traditional one. There are some people who come out of football who are into this. For example, the guys who invented packing to Bundesliga players who were thinking about uh, uh, getting better data. 
Um, but but mostly it's true it's outsiders so I think the typical English expression is thinking outside the box there is not not much uh, thinking outside the box within football or used to be and and um, my impression is it's changing and it's changing with this kind of people and this kind of uh, new information uh, that is processed now uh, within clubs uh, federations and so on and so on We'll go on to talk about packing in a, in a bit more detail. Um, one of the other themes that emerges in the book is is the problem of applying some of these data-led practices to real-world football environments. And there was, there was a sentence in the book that jumped out at me where you write, as much as it's great to work as a data analyst at a Premier League club, there's a good chance no one actually reads your reports and findings, which is a slightly dismaying thought from, from the data perspective. Is... Is, is data analysis still in the background at the big English clubs, would you say? Um, I, I think that depends on the clubs. It's uh, not absolutely clear for me because um, the most of the clubs are very, very tight-lipped about, about it. They don't like to talk about it. And even if you ask people you know from clubs and ask them, yeah, well, what's going on at the other clubs? They very often don't know because there is no exchange. There is a big probably because of competition because of other reasons I don't I, I don't know but I think there are clubs where, where you can see that um, their strategies their ideas uh, their transfers and and so on um, have some element of data usage in it uh, so so typically it would be Arsenal for example they for, for some years ago already bought um, a data company that DNA an American company at that time and they bought it. Um, Liverpool, um, very much so. Um, They already opened up about it uh, recently a bit. Ian Graham, um, the head of research at Liverpool, whom I met some some weeks ago, um, he when I met, interestingly, when I met him, he would say, I, I can t- talk with you only off the record uh, because my club does not want it. And, and some weeks later, uh, they had a big feature in uh, New York Times magazine uh, about what they are doing. So obviously the club was changing um, uh, the ideas about it. And um, so there are some more, uh, uh, Brighton, uh, Southampton. And sometimes you see transfers when you look at them, um, you think somebody might have looked up some databases and identify a, a player and make a transfer then that is not normal. So, so for example, there is uh, this guy, Emily Buendia, an Argentinian who came from Getafe to Norwich last season, so to the championship. And um, um, maybe you could think maybe there is an agent who w- wants to establish his player in England or something like this. But I know from a, a data guy in Germany that obviously um, Buendia had exciting stats and and so he also thought oh the he might be interesting for our club and he went to Norwich and I would be sure that there was a data guy sitting in Norwich saying to his manager or scout or whatever look at him and and they signed him and I think he's a, he's a, a very good player for a team that uh, went up to the Premier League and, and you've written about the role of, of data in transfers and you say that there can't be any transfers that happen at the highest level of football now that, that don't involve someone looking at a player's numbers at some point. But looking at sort of the use of data more widely and 
you know, like anywhere, there's there's a lot of kind of inherent conservatism in British football. There's resistance to new ideas. Are, are there any managers you can think of, or, or or any areas where people are still resisting data, or is it now firmly embedded in in every area of professional football? I think um, um, yeah, I don't know exactly now because it, again, it's difficult to find uh, to find out because people don't like to talk about it. So the people who are working a lot with it don't like to talk about it because they don't want to be seen as data nerds. Uh, I am um, on on uh, on the other hand side, people who probably still resent it also don't uh, want to talk about it, and there is a a lot. Of secrecy still still around it, but 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 again, I would say it's it's true. Um, uh, for example, when you go for transfers, um, yes, you look up um, uh, data, and and if you invest like 50, 60, 70 million nowadays, you should do it. You have to do it. You have to back your decision um, by looking at the best possible data. And, and I think there is no way around it anymore. In the early stages of the book, you write about outcome bias in football and the way that we look at the result of a match and think, oh, well, that was always going to happen. That is a consequence of the team selection, of, of the manager's tactics. Um, and as a consequence, we, we sometimes overlook the role of luck. Um, things that can't be predicted and there's some great examples I mean you write about Alan Pardew's Newcastle team who finished fifth in the Premier League in 2012 and then 16th the following season almost get relegated despite having underlying statistics that, that were basically the same um, and then you, you know you also get players who are statistical outliers I think one example in the book is, is Marouane Chamac who Arsenal signed from Bordeaux who, who looked like he was going to be the next big thing scored loads of goals but actually if you looked at how that related to his underlying statistics, it, it was a bit of a fluke. There's still a big role played by luck in football. I think that's something that really comes out in the book, that you, you can't pin absolutely everything down to stats. I mean, the, the concept uh, of expected goals and expected points and that kind of stuff, I think it's it's pretty well established in, in, in the UK now. It's not so much in, in Germany, interestingly. Um, but but I think when you look at this kind of, of statistic, you, you, you can almost measure, I mean, not totally, totally exact but you can measure the gap between the performance and the result and i mean we've seen all we've seen so many matches in 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 our lives when when somebody was just uh, luckily winning from a deflected shot from 25 meters or, or so and the other team had loads of fantastic goal ch chances and and uh, did not put it in and i think that's something we we also have to understand how important uh, the factor of luck is and actually i mean it belongs to the dna of football I, I think that's also one of the reasons why football is so great because it's fate or, or i mean it's almost something religious coming with this uh, uh, kind of stuff but now you can you can look at it with expected goals for example and expected points and see is somebody just having a, a, a hot streak is somebody desperately un unlucky and and i think in the future we also see clubs thinking about when they think about shall we sack our manager then they will look at the numbers more closely. Maybe not now, but but in in years to come, because also the public will will, will understand it. Because in the end, you fire somebody because he's unlucky. 
And that is also some, I, I was saying those, this kind of religious uh, thing, it's, it's human sacrifice. Because, oh, we're in a big crisis, we have to do something and blah, 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 blah. And in the end, we have to fire the manager. And then we start all over again. And uh, that's, um, yeah, that's, um, uh, that's how, how it has been going for many years. But it's, it's not healthy because it's, it costs a lot of money and doesn't make no sense in the end uh, if, the, if he's just unlucky. Yeah, I mean, and you write about Jurgen Klopp's last season at Borussia Dortmund where the team appear to be heading for relegation and, and Jurgen Klopp ends up leaving the club, but that actually, statistically, they were looking far better than the results suggested. And, and as you as you write in the book, it wasn't until Klopp and his team got to Liverpool that they actually had that illustrated for them by the analysts at Liverpool because at Dortmund it wasn't something that he'd been able to put his finger on. Yeah, it, 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 I mean that was one of the I think biggest outliers uh, in recent years because they were second from bottom before the winter break and should have been expected fourth. Um, but interestingly I'd, I, I, I I, I've been spoken with Pete Kravitz, uh, Klopp's assistant, about it. Or uh, let me say, at least I try to, to speak with him about it because he refused to to actually discuss it. Uh, yeah, we, he was saying, no, we, we, we were trying to turn every stone round and trying to make things better and blah, blah, blah. But And, and I was insisting and insisting, insisting again when I was talking to him. Yeah, but what, what the element of luck? But he refused to talk about it. And I think it's the reason for it is um, because that's something with coaches and managers, that's something they don't have under control and they will never have it under control. It's just part of the game. Let's talk about packing, um, a concept that was invented by two former German players, Stefan Reinhardt and, and Jens Hegeler. And for those unfamiliar with packing, it basically calculates how many opposition players have been taken out of the game by a pass or a dribble uh, and then attributes values accordingly and it, the more detailed interpretations of it than that but that, that's sort of the basic idea and you write it in the book that it's changed the way that you view football particularly with regard to a player's ability to receive a pass rather than a player's ability to necessarily see a pass and, and play a pass can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah because with this concept you get a, um, you get a better idea um, what kind of passes really make sense or are really helpful? I mean, there instinctively, uh, I think everybody who's interested in football knows about it. But but when you have a this kind of 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 a metric. Um, you think, oh, great, this pass, and he took seven players out. And maybe it was only 15 meters long because it was so, so clever pass between the lines and how good the run from the player was who was receiving the ball and also thinking about how important it is that, that you have players that are so clever to go in the areas of the field, in the spaces uh, where they can receive the ball and, and really hurt the, the opponent. And I think you mentioned Messer Ozil as well as being a player who is very, adept at receiving the ball in dangerous areas and that's something that that packing picks out because he's got a very high percentage in terms of where he is when he gets the ball um, but that's not something that would otherwise be be shown up by other other metrics that we have at our disposal yeah, so that's that's uh, sometimes you can identify qualities of players before that probably didn't have numbers for 
So and um, and that's good. I mean, because I mean, Özil is maybe not is 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 a good example because he is very controversial, um, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> but um, uh, but but probably you identify overseen players. So that are not very spectacular or play with smaller teams and, and, and have this uh, quality. And, and so, again, uh, it's better to have uh, data than not. And it's better to have intelligent data than not. Mm. There's an amusing bit in the book when you write about Mehmet Scholl um, working as a pundit on German TV during Euro 2016. He's had the concept of packing presented to him and he's obviously really on board with it but but doesn't really manage to communicate how it can be used all that well and ends up being being mocked um, you know, for, for being so obsessed with this new idea that people are still getting their heads around. And I, I think in, in, in this country, in the UK, you sometimes find a similar reaction to, to new ideas when I think about you know when we discovered last season that Liverpool had employed a specialist throwing coach and there were all sorts of jokes about that when, when you look at the way that, that these new ideas are received in Germany and in the UK are there similarities in, in terms of the amount of resistance that, that they get a Germany more advanced are the UK more advanced no, I would say it's it's the same in, in, in Germany as well um, so, so um, a lot of people just hate that stuff um, because they have the feeling that it takes the fun of football away. And and I think it's not true. I mean, I, I think you can still go to the stadium or sit in front of, of, of your telly and, and watch a football match and be totally excited and loving your team and hating them and whatever. But if you want to uh, have a, a serious opinion or even you have to make decisions, I think then you should um, should have a, a different approach. I think it's it's still perfectly okay to totally emotionally talk about football. Uh, fantastic. I mean, I, I'm the same as well. I'm not not, not sitting uh, in front of a football match or go in a stadium and, 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 and have a second screen with data flowing in. I, I also, uh, when I watch a football match, I, I, I try to understand it, but uh, uh, not constantly uh, with, with data or stuff but but later on maybe if you think what went wrong what worked what how was it so magical or whatever or were they lucky or weren't they unlucky then i think actually adds to the fun to 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 understand if you want to understand it so yeah i think it's an important point to make it's not that if you're interested in data you're then ignoring everything else you love about football. I mean, as, as you say in the book, it's something that can actually enhance your appreciation of football. It's just a, a different way of looking at it, yeah, I suppose. And, and I'm not a data nerd myself, so I can't do all that stuff. I, 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 I don't make an algorithm at home to uh, to understand it better. So, so my idea... Uh, for the book was to translate between the worlds. So we, you have this world of additional information and uh, a lot of data and so on, and, and, and you have the traditional world of football. And I think it, it, um, there is a, a very often a gap be between that that doesn't need to be there because uh, I think all this stuff is very interesting. I mean, it adds to the fun. And um, and if you're professionally in football, I, I think it not only adds to the fun, then it also adds to the quality of your work. Um, on a few occasions, you write about the MIT Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, which is this, this sort of global gathering of people who work in data analysis in sport. And and when we, when we go to the 2017 event, 
event, there's a lot of pessimism. People are wondering where uh, the data analysis industry is going, whether there's going to be a future for data analysts in sport. But then we end on a much more positive note. You look at the research that's being done at, at big clubs like Liverpool, like Manchester City, like Barcelona in particular. Um, where do you where do you think things are going in data analysis in football? I, I noticed that at one point you you talk about how predictive analysis will become more important than descriptive analysis. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, especially uh, managers want to to find out what to do in the next match. So now now it's mainly looking back. What did we do well in the in the in the last match, and what what we, can we learn from it? But um, they have to make a lot of tactical decisions, and and, and I think um, data analysis hasn't influenced tactical decisions for the next match no, not not so much uh, so far uh, for example with this uh, Barcelona uh, approach or, um, where you understand much more about what's going on on the on the pitch I, I think there will be a a, a jump forward and what we uh, um, understand about football at the start of the book it's all about underdogs coming into football from the outside and, and trying to flip things upside down by looking at the game in different ways and and, and you know looking for looking for things in the data and by the end of the book you're writing about how the big clubs now are investing heavily in in data Barcelona you mentioned Liverpool Manchester City other examples um, and obviously because of the, the resources they have they're able to fund more research than anybody else do you worry at all that the football hackers of the future are all going to be working for the baddies <laughs> that's a very good that's a very good question i was thinking about it a lot but i i'm i mean my heart is with the underdogs um, i'm supporting an underdog in germany bochum and i think still think there is a uh, there are a lot of chances for for the football hackers and for for the underdogs because it's all so complex on the one hand side and on the other hand side the application on on real life so that the important uh, people in clubs really talk with with each other, exchange information, exchange view, have a a good process or so. Um, I think we, if you have that, you you can go very far even with small resources because a lot of the big clubs they just have money and they have everything, but probably they don't have it uh, put it together and linked it linked everybody within a club. And so so I'm pretty optimistic that they um, waste a lot of money <laughs> well, it's good to end on a, on a hopeful note uh, Christoph thanks very much again for coming in to speak to us Football Hackers The Science and Art of a Data Revolution uh, translated by our very own Raf Honigstein uh, is out now and uh, there's a quote from Raf on the front that says it will completely change your perspective of the game's inner machinations uh, and I'm pretty confident that it will so thanks Christoph thank you thanks for having me